I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Vegetable question time, bee counting, and a countdown to the greatest flower show on earth. Yes, it's nearly time for Chelsea Flower Show. All this and more coming up in today's RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Guy Barter, Chief Horticulturist at the RHS. May is such an exciting time. Not only are the plants and trees bursting into life, but it's time for the star-studded annual gathering of garden lovers in the grounds of the Royal Hospital in London. This year, I've been working on a health and well-being garden to be produced at Chelsea Flower Show in conjunction with the National Health Service. This garden is being designed by Matt Keatley, a noted garden designer who has won many gold medals at Chelsea and other RHS flower shows in the past. You can hear an exclusive interview with designer Matt Keatley about his well-being garden at Chelsea Flower Show in our Chelsea Shorts podcast coming soon. There are mini-series from behind the scenes at Chelsea Flower Show that you can download from our podcast page in the run-up to the show's public opening on the 22nd of May. See rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Here you can also find links to all the other items in this podcast. 2018 is going to be another stunning year. We went to the show site during the excitement of Build Week when all the amazing gardens and displays are being constructed to learn more. My name is Catherine Potsides and I'm the show manager for the RHS Chelsea Flower Show. We're here at the Royal Hospital Chelsea. We're building the RHS Chelsea Flower Show in 2018, our 105th year of the flower show. And all the noise behind you is diggers driving, uh, people digging, cement mixers mixing, and uh, the busy sound of people quietly planting plants in the ground, ready for next week. Well, it's been a really exciting build. We've got 27 gardens this year, 13 of which are being designed by female garden designers, which is really exciting for the show. We've had some really fascinating things going on. So uh, one of my highlights of the early build was um, Chris Beardshaw had a ginormous 40-year-old Betula Nigra, and it had specialist lifting equipment brought onto site in order to get it off the lorry and into his plot, and it's an absolute beauty. It's settled in perfectly and looks like it's been there forever. A Betula Nigra is a river birch tree, so it's got a beautiful sort of peeling bark and sort of a light leafy character. Light and sort of delicate foliage appears to be a bit of a trend. We've also got an amazing Salix, which is a willow tree, uh, in fact three of them, on Joe 
Mary Thompson's garden, which has um, been planted up by an all-female planting team and also sort of features this incredible structure, which is sort of a natural curves representing the landscape of the UK. It's absolutely stunning and it has been put together by female engineering students who came down um, along with a supervisor from the University of Cambridge. I think it's really exciting this year to see so many female designers embracing the Chelsea Flower Show. We're really, really lucky to have some incredibly talented people on site. Not just Joe. we've got Sarah Price designing the M&G Garden, we've got uh, Chelsea expert Kate Gould in the Space to Grow category, Dr Catherine MacDonald who is using her scientific background to bring the Fabiaceae family to the show, so that's all peas for anyone who has not heard of them before. Every plant in that garden is going to be from the pea family, so that's a very exciting concept. We've also got Katie Chrome in the uh, artisan area and Kate Savile and Tamara Bridge who are bringing a gin garden together for Warner Edwards, a really lovely delicate space with beautiful dry stone walling and they are um, experts in designing gardens uh, having come through the Young Designer Garden Competition at Tatton Park Flower Show a couple of years ago. They've teamed up and they've back here at Chelsea this year. I'm just really excited for the whole show to come together. It's amazing, everyone is, is very busy. There's literally thousands and thousands of people here on site. Each has something to contribute from um, those who put up the scaffolding uh, to those who dig out the grounds and then re return them to their natural state after the show, to the forklift drivers, to the landscapers who bring their expertise, uh, to the garden designers who bring their own unique spell onto these magical spaces. It's, uh, it's an incredible team effort. I'd say that there's a really amazing Chelsea spirit and that's the nice thing about being at this flower show. I think um, it's a very much a collective effort and it's very much uh, the industry showing itself off to its best. Every person from the plant grower to the superstar designer uh, wants the best for the show and wants the best for their garden and that is why so many people put so much effort into it and it's, um, it's fabulous to watch that happen. We spoke to garden designer Jo Thompson during a brief pause in her busy show preparation. I'm designing the Wedgwood Garden for this year's Chelsea Flower Show. The brief from Wedgwood for this garden was that it should be a feminine garden and that it should be innovative and ambitious and from that I created in my mind this imaginary client who's a woman, a kind of strong, successful woman, and this this is part of her garden. And I didn't want it to be all frothy and pink and fluffy. I wanted it to, to have a strong framework. So I've got this sculpture running through it and it's it's a kind of pavilion in the sense that it's it's a structure in the garden it's not a practical pavilion in the building sense but it's it's more it's more of a sculpture and we've got yeah this kind of feminine feel to the garden there's been a lot of involvement from women we've had female engineers working alongside Alan McRoby who designed the structure with us. We've got the planting team on site now, um, as usual, the all-girl planting team that has sort of grown over the years and is a, we were saying the other day that it's, it's our kind of highlight of the year, us all getting together and working on something. I think it's great to see a larger number of women at Chelsea, you know, along Main Avenue and in the other gardens. And I think that's a really good example for other women who are thinking about entering the shows and and give them confidence to to apply. 
biggest challenges have been having to move a few trees around due to some technical issues and also building on a site that I haven't built on before which is the rock bank and it's actually turning out to be a really good spot it's incredibly peaceful compared to everybody else and shaded you know normally I think I'd, I'd be bit upset to be in the shade but within the hot weather we've had recently is it's been a real little haven so it's great working down there we've got a brilliant team and the biggest challenges up till now have been trying to work out how this sculpture that flows through the garden actually stands up I think it was even keeping the engineer awake at night he said and I think you know for him to say that to me you know he's, he's a world expert in his field and for him to say that really was a little bit worrying but um, it's it's right touch wood and it is now really the key is to get all the planting in and for it to be looking natural by the time the show opens at the moment it's still looking as if it's just been put there so we need it to grow in the next few days I'd say my favourite thing about Chelsea is seeing all my mates again. I think it's the one time in the year where you get to see a whole lot of people together that you don't see for the rest of the year. And that's designers, the show team, the production staff. It's, it's a really lovely opportunity to spend that time together. And it is quite intense, you know, it's 12 hours a day, three weeks, no weekends or bank holidays. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really lovely. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to Monday when I can unveil it. I'm looking forward to Sunday afternoon when it's been when the judging has finished. That's what I'm really looking forward to. And I'm really glad they brought that judging forward by a day because it just means that on the Monday morning you can relax and show people the garden and you're not still thinking about the fact that you're going to have lots of people walking on with clipboards and you still haven't got things finished. So, no, roll on Monday. Garden designer Joe Thompson. You can hear more about Chelsea Flower Show on our podcasts, follow us on social media at the underscore RHS, and of course on BBC television coverage. Don't forget there are still tickets available to our other major flower shows, Chatsworth House in Derbyshire, Hampton Court Palace and Tatton Park. At Chatsworth, there's a chance for you to be part of this podcast. On Members' Day, Wednesday the 6th of June, we'll be recording a live question and answer session with RHS advisors and well-known garden experts. If you can't be there, you can submit your question via social media using the hashtag RHSChatsworth. And if you're an RHS member, tickets are cheaper and you get priority access to all our flower shows. Now, question time. Given this year's late spring, many gardeners have been slower than usual in getting their vegetables growing. Our advisor's mailbag is full of questions about growing your own. I joined members of the Advice and Gardens team to tackle some of the questions they've received recently. I'm Jenny Bowden and I'm one of the horticultural advisors here at Wisley. Hi, I'm Rebecca Mealy. Hi, my name is Mario De Pace and I work in the edibles team here at Wisley. We have a question here from Penny Dampier, who's in London. Her son would like to grow a giant beanstalk. He's three and not very patient. Can you recommend a super fast growing bean variety that grows very tall and produces recognisable and tasty beans? Thank you. 
you will make Jack very happy. You know, a, a good number of the of um, runner beans, runner bean, runner beans varieties are, are all suitable for, for that purpose. Uh, I don't know exactly what is meant by a beanstalk, but <laughs> you know, you definitely get a good crop in a short period of time of tasty, recognizable beans. So, Wisley Magic? Wisley Magic, very good. Um, the one I've tried last year, uh, Firestorm, that is very good as well. Uh, there are some white flowered varieties which are also very attractive, uh, like think of Moonlight. Uh, there is a, a pink flowered varieties which I absolutely adore, is uh, called Celebration. And it's really, really very productive. The, the beans are very tender and tasty. So that, that is what springs to mind. Perfect. <laughs> How would you go about growing beans? What's the best method? Well, in this part of the country, it's ideal, at this time of the year, it's ideal to start them in the ground. Okay, direct uh, sow them. But, you, you know, it's, if, it's, if, it's on, if only a few plants are required, then it's never a bad idea to start them in a 9 centimeter pot with just general purpose compost. Grow them on until they are at the second or third leaf stage and then plant them in a, either in a large pot or in the open ground and off they go very quickly so it's an email from brian smith last year many of my tomatoes of several varieties went brown at the base and went rotten what might have caused this please how do i stop it happening again Hmm. it's something called blossom end rot and it happens quite a lot on the bigger tomatoes and literally it's a calcium deficiency but it's really caused by watering being inconsistent. So, for example, if you grow in a grow bag, the roots go to the corners and it's quite difficult to water efficiently. And so it breaks the stream of calcium going up into the plant. And once that's happened, it causes a, a calcium deficiency and then you get this rotting off in the bottom of the plant. So watering well is the main way of escaping it and also growing cherry tomatoes because they don't get it. Also overcropping, because sometimes if the plant's got too many fruit on it, um, you can actually reduce the actual burden um, to the plant as well. There's plenty of calcium in the soil and in the water, so you don't have to add any calcium fertiliser. It's just at the very extremity of the plant, the calcium, which is not that mobile in the plant, can be in deficit. That's why it's at the end of the fruit that's furthest away from the plant. So... Once you've seen blossom end rot, it's, you have to it have to have wait a little while before it recovers. So you um, have to pick off the affected fruit and then wait f for more fruit to form that are unaffected. So it's important not to let it develop, if at all possible. It's really disappointing when it happens, I must admit, but uh, it is it is possible to overcome it for the for the rest of your crop. So don't be disheartened. Keep watering. Keep going. More flowers will come, and more tomatoes will come. So uh, we've got an email uh, from P French and uh, they are talking about mushrooms. Can they grow them in their allotment or is it best left to professional commercial growers? Uh, I'd like to have some more flavoursome fungi. A lot of the supermarket stock is bland. Maybe some Italian varieties, porcini, etc. Could I even grow truffles? Well, there's a lot of questions in there, actually. <laughs> um, first of all, can P. French grow mushrooms in an allotment, Mario? I would say no. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
you know, I don't think so. Mushroom is uh, require very specific climatic and uh, soil conditions to grow. Especially as far as uh, porcini is concerned, it's best to let nature do do the. But it is possible. It is possible to buy mushroom kits, isn't it? Have you had any experience of those, guy? Um, you buy a spawn, um, which is typically a material like sawdust or grains of corn uh, that are full of the mushrooms vegetative strands and you buy a substrate which is typically something like a uh, wood fiber or, or wood chips and you bring the two together in the right conditions of warmth and humidity and that's where the difficulty lies um, because unless you get the warmth and the humidity right um, it's often disappointing and that takes quite a bit of practice we've got lots of fungus experts at the royal horticultural society and they are mainly interested in the fungi that kill plants but um, they're also interested in eating and food so they've tried growing these um, mushrooms and they found it quite difficult however as jenny says you can buy all the ingredients and they're not that expensive so if you want to give it a go then um, then it's possible I've seen various plantings like oyster mushrooms for example are grown in logs so I've seen people with permaculture gardens have got uh, lots of logs laid out in lines and um, they've inoculated and sometimes they're quite successful and other times uh, you need to uh, perhaps give a bit of protection so you'd need some kind of shed or some kind of shelter to to grow these things one of the best substrates, so we're told, uh, is coffee grounds. And a lot of coffee shops and supermarkets let you take away as many coffee grounds as you like. You just have to buy the spawn and inoculate the coffee grounds. And who knows, you, you, you may get lucky. I think the idea about truffles is a brilliant idea. There's been a lot of experiments in the last 30 years on growing truffles, particularly in New Zealand, uh, where plants like oaks and hazels are inoculated with the truffle fungus. That's what we call a mycorrhiza that grows in association with the tree. And every so often, in fact, just the other week, people report they've harvested a truffle, but it's a very long-term and uncertain activity. So you can buy, from time to time, trees that have been inoculated with truffles, and you can plant them, and a few years later, you might get a truffle. But at the moment, it's still very experimental. But having said that, um, one or two trees don't cost that much, and who knows, you could, um, you could be treating all your friends to the, to the choicest truffles. And finally, we have a question from Eileen Mayhill, who's in Cambridge. Uh, she says, my daughter's school would like to grow some foods of the world. They were wondering about creating raised beds, each representing veg from six continents. Maybe seven, if you can think of any veg that might grow in Antarctica. Do you have any suggestions for fruit and veg that would grow in the UK to represent these continents, please? Mm, that sounds like a school project. I came up with pak choy for China, fennel, so fennel's the aniseedy bulb, that's uh, Mexico, manjtu for Europe, okra from India for India, and then I was thinking kiwi fruit would obviously be New Zealand, and then pumpkins America, so you, you, could, you could get a bit clever. There's some good ideas there, Becky. Guy, have you got anything to add? I'm not sure what the question means. Do they mean um, food that originated in particular continents, you know, um, or do they mean food that's grown in particular continents or associated with the cuisine of particular continents? I hope it's it... the latter because um, there's not some con almost all um, vegetables and foods come from Asia. There's a relatively smaller number uh, from Europe and America. We've travelled continents, we've grown beans, and we've got lots of amazing ideas for the garden. 
As before, you can find links to more information about growing your own fruit and vegetables, plus all the other items discussed in today's podcast on our programme page. This is also the place to find a link to the Great British Bee Count. This annual survey asks wildlife lovers to help scientists assess the health and number of the bee population in the UK. Writer and wildlife gardener Kate Bradbury told us why this survey is vital to help protect our endangered pollinator population. Hello, this is Kate Bradbury. I'm a garden writer specialising in wildlife gardening and I've just got a new book out which is called The Bumblebee Flies Anyway. It's a memoir, it's about my garden, which I recovered from under a sea of decking and I transformed it into a wildlife garden. And it's a year documenting this transformation and there's lots of other things in there too. So the Great British Bee Count runs from the 17th of May to the 30th of June. It's run by Friends of the Earth and it basically is just encouraging everybody to get out there and count bees in their garden or park or school or anywhere where there's some flowers really and there's lots of bees to see. It's a fantastic citizen science project, gets us all involved, all engaged in looking at bees and gives us loads of insight into how our bees are doing this summer as well. We've got about 267 species of bee in Britain. Just one of them is the honeybee and around 24 are bumblebees and the rest are solitary bees. They all have very different life cycles and habitat requirements. Some bumblebees nest underground in old mouse holes. Some nest beneath sheds or in compost bins or above ground in long grass. Whereas solitary bees, which don't have a nest system like bumblebees and honeybees do, they nest in a variety of cavities where the female goes in and lays an egg and leaves it with a parcel of pollen and nectar for her grub and then seals up the nest. She never meets her young, unlike the bumblebees and honeybees. And solitary bees, they may nest in the ground, in little holes in your lawn, but also cavity nesting solitary bees, they nest in bee hotels and in holes in the wall and in holes in wood. So any of these habitats that you can provide in your garden is fantastic for bees. They all feed on a variety of nectar and pollen sources. Some bees have long tongues, some bees have short tongues, some bees have specific preferences for flowers, other bees have no preferences at all. So the general rule is just grow as many different types of flower in your garden as possible from March to November. Make sure you have single flowers where you can easily see the parts in the middle that, that provide the nectar and the pollen. Don't go for overly bred double flowers such as roses and dahlias. If you do buy roses and dahlias, make sure you buy the single flowered versions rather than the double flowered versions, which have so many petals that the bees can't access the goods within. Bees, like all insects, are not doing very well at the moment. They seem to be undergoing prolonged declines. However, there's so much we can do in our gardens to help reverse these declines simply by growing more flowers for them and for providing habitats in which they can nest. The British Bee Count's important because it engages the public and it gets us all out there looking at bees, counting bees and also feeding back this information to scientists which then monitor our bee populations. It's a fantastic resource and something that we can all do very easily. And it's easy to join, just simply visit Friends of the Earth slash bee dash count or download the Bee Count app on your phone to find out more. It's really easy to log the data, you can do as many bee counts as you want and it's great fun for all the family. You don't need to be a bee expert. There's loads of information online, both in the app and on the website, on how to identify the most common types of bee. You know, you might want to look out for bumblebees. There are about 10 species that come into our garden. Just look at the colour of their bums. If you see a red-tailed bumblebee, that's got a big red bum. There's some white-tailed bumblebees, which have got a big white bum. So, I mean, that's a really good way to, to work out how 
you know, which the different bumblebees are. And then you can think, okay, I saw one with a white bum and then it had a yellow stripe or a black stripe. There's lots of diagrams online which will show you which species you saw. There are other ways to identify species. So leafcutter bees, which use bee hotels, they carry pieces of leaf back to the nest, whereas red mason bees, they carry bits of mud back to the nest. So this is a, this is a, a good sign as well of just, you know, which bee's using my bee hotel? Is it carrying a leaf or a bit of mud? And that will enable you to get down to a species level as well. The Great British Bee Count is something that all the family can do. It's a wide misconception that bees are dangerous and aggressive and sting you. Most species of bee won't sting you at all, but do maintain a safe distance. Don't touch the bees, don't get in their way, but just sit quietly and count the bees and they'll get on with what they're doing and enable you to count them happily and peacefully and, and engage in this fantastic project. Well, that's all we have time for today, but don't forget to join us for exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes reports in our mini-series of Chelsea Shorts in the run-up to the show. We'll be back next week with a review of this year's show, curated by garden designer and TV presenter James Alexander Sinclair. Until the next time, from the podcast team and me, Guy Barter, goodbye and happy bee spotting. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.